Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. So in our series on the Ten Commandments, we come down to number nine. You know, when you Google, do y'all ever do that? When you Google about lying, you come up with some strange lies. I guess that's appropriate. Um, I was looking at one page about famous liars in the Bible. And this person claimed that one of them was God. Well, how could that be? Well, you probably know what they said. They said in the garden, God had told Adam not to eat of one of the trees. Which tree? The knowledge of good and evil. Isn't it interesting? There's the tree of life there. Did he ever forbid them from eating from the tree of life? No. But the one thing he forbade them to do was to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they chose to eat of that because they were tempted. Who was the tempter? Who is the tempter? Satan. And he appears as a serpent. Well, this list and this person that said that God is one of the famous liars in the Bible, you know what this person says. That God said, because if you eat it, you will what? Surely die. So Eve took a bite. Adam took a bite. Did they die? Well, not instantly, but did they die? Absolutely. Now, there's a lot of debate amongst theologians about whether Adam and Eve were created to be immortal or not, and whether or not the biting of the apple, that is, succumbing to temptation, was uh, the cause of physical sin or not. There are two schools of thought. Some say that God intended for us to die, but that we would have spiritual life afterward. And then others say that if Adam and Eve had been obedient and continued to be, that they would have then been immortal. And the Bible doesn't really address that. It doesn't address the ifs and the wherefores about that. But what we do know is they experienced, they did experience mortal death eventually, and more importantly, sin causes spiritual death. So I don't see how in the world this person could have said that, that uh, God was a liar on that account. Another famous liar in the Bible, this list said, was Jesus. And you probably know the account about which this person was speaking. It's John, the seventh chapter. John, the seventh chapter, Jesus' brothers, well, bottom line, Jesus says he's not going to go to the temple on the feast day. But then, and he says very explicitly that he's not going to go. But does he go? Yes, he does. But the problem is, people don't read that text in depth. First of all, the setting is this. His brothers say, you ought to reveal yourself. You're such a great miracle worker. You know, just show them your power. And it's in that context that Jesus says he's not going to go. And then it says, when he did decide to go, and it's very simple. He could have changed his mind. Okay? When he does decide to go, he decides to go how? 
in secret. So I think what he's saying is, I'm not going to go to do that publicly. Okay. But there's another issue here. Some would say, well, he knew that he was going to go ahead of time, and therefore, when he said he wasn't going to go, he was saying that he wasn't when he knew he was. But there's another problem there. We don't know that. We don't know that Jesus knew everything about the future. Oh, but God, Jesus is, is the Son of God, and he's God, and he's divine. But we know this. Even though Jesus did know many things in the hearts and minds of people, and even though he didn't know many things that were to come, it does not mean that in the flesh that he knew everything. We know that he didn't know everything. Because why? He says he did not know when the day of the return of the Son of Man was going to be, that only the Father does. So these arguments about God and Jesus being liars are specious. They have no substance to them. You know, many of you probably know about the story of uh, Don Richardson. Excuse me, I've got to adjust. This thing keeps sliding down. Okay. Does it do that to you, Noah? Watch out. Let me get one that doesn't. Okay. All right. There we go. Y'all who are online, bear with me, okay? That won't go down at all. Many of you know the story about Don Richardson and his wife, Carol. They were missionaries to Western New Guinea back in the 60s, and he is famous for a book called Peace Child. Some of you know the story. He was a, he was a missionary to a tribe of cannibalistic headhunters in uh, Western New Guinea, virtually uh, Stone Age humans. And um, they were always at war. They did not value the uh, New Testament values or the Old Testament values of truth and honesty and sincerity. In fact, they, they honored deception. They thought it was a wonderful thing for a person to be able to deceive and overcome their enemy by uh, deception and by lying. They valued it as the highest virtue. <clears throat> in fact, they said that in uh, the account of Jesus in the garden and Judas that Judas is the hero because he wormed his way deceptively into the inner circle of Jesus and was able then to deceive and then to betray him and they they bade that highly it's kind of twisted isn't it you know there were early Christians um, that they call themselves Christians they were Gnostics and to say one is a Gnostic Christian is almost a kind of oxymoronic statement, if you know anything about Gnosticism. The Gnostics said that Jehovah God was not the true ultimate God, that in fact he was a, an evil demiurgos, that he created the physical world. And with the Gnostics, only the spiritual world had value. And for one group of Gnostics, the Sethites and the Perites that were subgroups of the Nassenes, we think that the word Nassim comes from the Hebrew word for serpent. They actually worship the serpent because they say that he was the hero in the garden because he was the one that really came to communicate the truth to Adam and Eve that they had been deceived by Jehovah. There are people with some pretty strange and weird ideas in history. But it's interesting, that sort of idea was behind what I spoke about earlier when the person that had the list said that God, in fact, was a liar. 
Well, to continue the story with Don Richardson, you know, they would not accept the Old and New Testament values which he preached and he taught, and he was ready to leave. He finally had had enough. He couldn't make a breakthrough. But the tribe didn't want him to leave, the Sawi tribe, and they pled and pled with him not to leave. And he, he and Carol were going to depart, to go, come back to the States, come back to Canada, and probably pastor church. And then they decided, the uh, Sawi tribe and the Hainim tribe, who were bitter enemies with each other, decided to put on a display. And they were out in the front of his house, and the chief of the Hainim tribe and the Sawi tribe were out there. And the Sawi tribe chief and his wife had a child that was newly born. And the Sawi tribe's tribal chief took his child over and gave it to the Hanim tribal chief, gave it to that tribe to raise, to give a new name as a what? A token of what? Peace. And that is, therefore, the name of the book, Peace Child. And all of a sudden, the light bulb came on for Don. He said, ah, I know how to reach them. He said, this is one of those kinds of redemptive analogies that you find in virtually every culture. And he used that as an obvious analogy for the giving of the Christ child for the reconciliation as we've read, read about this, morning, this evening in Romans, the, uh, the fifth chapter. So what about this whole idea of deceit and lying? Every culture has some standard of what a lie is and what deceit is. In Taoism, in the Tract of the Quiet Way, it says, do not assert with your mouth what your heart denies. That really is another way of saying to be true to what? Yourself. To be true to yourself. In Sikhism, Adi Grant, one of their uh, documents, says, dishonesty in business or the uttering of lies causes inner sorrow. Isn't that interesting? It's not so much concerned with the outward effect, but the inward effect. In another way, that is saying you need to be true to whom? To yourself. In Islam, there are many quotes from the Quran. One of them is, Oh, you who believe, wherefore do you say what you do not? Very hateful it is to God that you say what you do not. And that has to do with integrity. Integrity is saying and acting as you what actually are. In Buddhism, one of their sacred texts says this, a liar lies to himself as well as to the gods. Lying is the origin of all evils. It leads to the rebirth in miserable planes. You know, they believe in reincarnation. It leads to rebirth in miserable planes of existence, to breach the pure concepts and to the corruption of the body. Hinduism, the laws of Manu. All things are determined by speech. Speech is their root. And from speech they proceed. Therefore, he who is dishonest with respect to speech is dishonest in everything. And if you stop and think about it, there's a lot of truth to that. Last week we talked about what was the Eighth Commandment? Thou shalt not what? Steal. What's at the root of, of stealing? Dishonesty, isn't it? Sure. In, Confuci in Confucianism, the Analects say this, 
I do not see what use a man can be put to whose word cannot be trusted. How can a wagon be made to go if it has no yoke bar or a carriage if it has no collar bar? In other words, what he's saying is speech and the way we are either honest or dishonest is like another analogy would be like the rudder of a ship or the steering wheel of a car. Of course, you know what the text is. The two primary texts are Exodus 20, 16, and it's, it's exactly the same in Deuteronomy 5, 20. You shall not bear false witness, but that's not all that it says. You shall not bear false witness, what? Against your neighbor, which connects with the Levitical command that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So in a way, there's a hint about dishonesty being not only true to your neighbor, but also to whom? To yourself. Parallel text in Exodus, the 23rd chapter. You shall not bear false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. So it's connected with witness somehow. And in the New Testament, of course, uh, Jesus cites this uh, on the occasion with a rich young ruler. When he does what? The rich young ruler asks what he must do to be righteous. Uh, Or what is the greatest command then? uh, Is is a product of that discussion. And he then recites the commands. And so there's parallel text in Matthew 10 and Luke 18 and, and Matthew 19. Colossians 3 says, do not lie, and not just do not lie, but do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. So don't lie to your neighbor. What's the relationship to the rest of the Decalogue? Often with these commands and the Ten Commandments, it relates to other commands and other passages. So, for example, taking the name of the Lord in vain, Leviticus 19.12, do not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of God. So it's connected then with the second command. Murder. Exodus 23, once again, a few verses later than the one where we read about doing, uh, rendering a false report. Keep, <clears throat> keep from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. So there's a linkage between lying and murder. Stealing, Leviticus 19. It links both stealing and lying together, and both are condemned. You know, the original commandment, I think it's pretty obvious. The context is a a judicial one, isn't it? The whole idea of bearing false witness brings up the idea of a court scene, judicial proceedings. Um, And so this was used in judicial kinds of settings. Remember, Moses was the prophet. Yes, he was the lawgiver, and he was also the what? The judge. So when he picks the elders to help him, the reason he picks the elders to help him is to then judge because he was burdened with so much of that responsibility. And of course, they were required then to bring witnesses against lawbreakers or for, law, for people that were accused of lawbreaking, that is, breaking the Ten Commandments. So for example, in Leviticus twenty-four thirteen, if a man is accused of blasphemy, it required witnesses. It says, let all, in this case, not just one or two, but let all who heard him lay hands on his head and then let the congregation stone him. It required witnesses then before the accusation of uh, 
being false then would be proven to be true. And Deuteronomy 21, if a rebellious son was to be tried, who was required to give witness? The father and the mother. It required how many witnesses? Two witnesses. So it's that kind of context, I think, against which this commandment is given. We're not to bear false witness in a kind of judicial setting against those that are charged with breaking the law. And it wasn't just that. It was over disputes about property or money. Again, in Exodus 23, it says that you shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be malicious, a malicious witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you t testify in a dispute so as to turn uh, aside the multitude in order to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in a dispute. So it's bringing in the idea of, of uh, property and money disputes. And a little bit later in the same chapter, you shall not pervert justice due to your needy brother in dispute. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. So all of this has to do with actually taking a stand and being a witness against somebody for their actions. But, of course, we know how many witnesses were required in the Old Testament. How many witnesses were required? Well, more than one. More than one. And in some instances it says two, in other instances it says two or three. Nobody was to be put to death based on the testimony of one witness. So for murder, in Numbers 35, it says for murder, it cannot be just one person. So it had to be two or more. For the charge of idolatry in Deuteronomy 17, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to... Uh, is to be put to death will be charged. He shall be put to death on the, not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. For any iniquity and sin, in Deuteronomy 19 then, it's broadened and it says that for any accusation of evil or iniquity, it required two or three witnesses, which is interesting then. When Paul closes what we call the, the second Corinthians, it's probably not the second letter, but it's the second one we've got in the Bible. There at the very end in chapter 13, he, he's confirming to them that he's going to come again. He's going to come back to them a third time. And he says, and you know this because it is testified by two or three witnesses. In other words, they have heard me make this promise and I'm going to hold the promise. The fuller context in the Old Testament, of course, is not just about giving witness in a judicial proceeding. We know that. Uh, Proverbs 6 says that God hates six things, and then he lists seven. He says God hates six things, and, and even seven. What are they? Pride, and the shedding of innocent blood, a wicked heart, uh, feet that are quick to do evil, that is evil doing, sowing discord, but in that list of seven, it lists lying explicitly and then bearing false witness. So there's a suggestion here that, they're, that, that they are two sides of the same thing in different contexts. One would be in a judicial kind of setting, giving a false witness, and the other is just generally lying. God hates lying. It's condemned as a practice throughout Proverbs. Proverbs 4 says, but away with you deceit, your deceitful mouth and put dis, uh, devious speech far from you. Proverbs 6 a worthless person, 
A wicked man is the one who walks with a perverse mouth. And of course, you know, the, uh, the citations are numerous in the prophets. The prophets condemned immorality, immorality and also idolatry. And usually in that, there was the idea that Israel was doing what in their idolatry and in their immorality? They were lying to whom? They were lying to God and they were deceiving God. So throughout the Old Testament, lying, of course, is condemned. The word in the Old Testament is, there are a couple of words, shaker and kazab, but they both, both mean the same thing. They mean deceit, to defraud. It means to be empty and have no substance. And it's the same word. It's interesting. The, the very same word is used for the a- adjective deceitful and the deceiver, the liar. In the New Testament, the word is sudes, from which we get pseudo, not quite full. No, that's not what it means. It means the breaking of faith, to deceive by breaking faith. You know, to understand really, I think, what it means more fully, we can look at antonyms in the Scripture. In Proverbs 12, it says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are His delight. So what does that suggest that lying is? If faithfulness delights Him and He hates lying, lying is what? Unfaithfulness. In Ephesians 4, the New Testament, it says, Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. Once again, to his neighbor. And so the contrast there is truthfulness and dishonesty. So you put all this together, and what we're talking about here is when a person is unfaithful and they're dishonest, and it's not just that they're unfaithful to others. It's not just that they're unfaithful to God. It's not just that they try to deceive others and they try to deceive God. It also has to do with the fact, as we've already said, that they are, in fact, trying to do what? Deceive themselves. It's a matter of integrity. And, you know, anyone who believes that God is who we know God to be understands the folly of trying to deceive God. It's a futile gesture. It's a futile activity. Because God knows in our heart, even before we speak or even before we think, what we're speaking and thinking. So it's completely futile. So what are the consequences of lying? You know, in each one of these commandments, we talked about the consequences. Well, in in terms of property and disputes in court, restitution was to be made. In Leviticus, the sixth chapter, if one had gained property through extortion, that is, they have lied, they have deceived, and they've gained a property or money or some kind of commodity, and it is found out in court, that person was to do what? To return the property, the money, or whatever it was to the one from whom it was taken, and it links it then to the eighth command, that is, uh, no stealing. And then what was to be added to it? There was a surtax. How much? What tax bracket are you in? (laughs) A 20% tax. It's pretty hefty. If a person brought an accusation against someone else, and the accusation was false, and there was a punishment in the law for it, blasphemy. What's the punishment for blasphemy in the Old Testament law? Stoning, death. Adultery. What is the punishment? Stoning, death. If they stole, it could be the cutting off of a hand or whatever. It's very interesting. If it was proven in court that the accusation was malicious and intentional, and it was wrong, okay, what happened? 
what kind of restitution was made. Deuteronomy 19.21, they were to pay the same penalty that the person that was accused of would have paid. So if a person maliciously brought a charge of adultery and the penalty was death and it was proven that that person maliciously did so, then the penalty for that false accusation was what? Death. And from that we get the expression, of course, Deuteronomy 19. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, what? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Hmm. For general lying and deceit, the, the scripture just speaks generally about the fact that liars will be punished and they'll be found out that the fortunes of liars will ultimately amount to nothing, and we know that no matter how rich they may be in this world, they cannot take it with them. And Jesus in Luke 18 says that all the secrets that we have, all the deception that we have covered up, all the things done in darkness eventually are going to be what? They're going to be brought to light and exposed at the end. So, where did lying begin? What's the origin of lying? You know, when we say, well, when did sin begin? How did sin begin? There's a lot of debate, you know, in, in Genesis 3 about, well, is, is Satan the originator of sin or was there sin before Satan? And you've heard me talk about this in terms of I do not believe that, uh, that, that evil has an existence in itself. I don't think that there is an ontological substance out there called evil. But there is a personification of evil. And people do evil things. And we know who the originator of evil activity is, and it is who? It is the liar. It's the father of lies. It's Satan. Jesus was very clear about this when he's talking to the Pharisees, and they had this debate about Abraham, and Abraham is their father. And he says, Abraham's not your father. If you were, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham would do. And then they get into this business about talking about fatherhood. And he said, you know who your father is? Your father is Satan. Wow, can you imagine how that hit him right between the eyes? And he says... You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. Wow. For he is a liar and he is a what? He's the father of lies. So we have here the contrast, don't we? God is holy. God is love. God is integrity. He says he is love. He says he loves. He does love. We've been talking about that for the last five weeks. He is who he says he is. Satan is exactly, exactly the opposite. He is not a lover. He is a murderer. He is not honest. He is a liar. And he's a father of lies. So when was the first lie? It was in the garden, wasn't it? So what was the first lie? Genesis 3, 4, and 5, when he uttered these words, you shall surely not, what? Die. Hmm. Uh, for God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's interesting in this, and I'm not saying that, that, that Eve was the weaker of the two, the weaker say. I'm not saying that, Okay. But, but Eve, between the two, was probably the more susceptible. Not because she was a woman, but she was more susceptible to the temptation, and Satan knew that. Now, I'm not saying that Adam was stronger and better, but Adam did have an advantage. 
And because Adam had an advantage, Adam was all the more culpable, I think, than Eve when he sinned. Hmm. What advantage did Adam have? Well, he's a man. No, that's not the advantage. He's a created person. No, that's not the advantage. What was the advantage? You see, when God said there are these trees out there, you can eat from all of them, but there's one you can't eat from, he spoke it to whom? He spoke it to Adam. Where was Eve? She was not there. So what's happened is Adam has told Eve, you know, has God ever spoken to you audibly? There's some people I know who say that God has spoken to them audibly. But that's pretty rare. Have you ever had a vision of God? That's pretty rare. I never have. I've never heard God speak. But I know what he says by what? Reading his word. Now, is this firsthand? Is this God? No. But this is God's word. It is a secondary witness. It comes from God through men who wrote of old the inspired word of God. This is not God himself, but it is his word to me. Do I trust it? Yes, I do. Eve did not trust the secondhand word that she got from Adam. Mm. She was susceptible. I think there, there's a lesson in that for us. You know, even though you have not audibly heard God, you have not seen God, you have not had a vision of God, you know his word to be true, and there is no excuse when we disobey it. Just like there was no excuse for Eve, was there? It's interesting, too, Satan's rationale. He, he sort of told the truth. He told a half-truth. And by doing that, we know that he told a half what? A half lie. Uh, he said, you know, because you see what will happen is you will learn the difference between good and evil. Did that happen? Yes, it did. Before that, Adam and Eve were what? They were innocent. They weren't good. They were innocent. And there's a difference. But if they had lived innocently, they then would have become good through their obedience. Okay? They became bad then when they succumbed, and they became sinful when they succumbed to the temptation. Um, they were innocent, and then when they ate the apple, they were what? They were guilty. They were guilty. But something else happened. They knew the difference between good and evil, unfortunately. And God really was saying, it's really better for you not to know all the things that I know. So did they become like God in that respect? Yes. But the other half lie is this. They didn't become more like God. They already were like God. They already were created in the image of God in the Imago Dei. And they walked with him and they talked with him in the garden in the cool of the, of the evening. What, what else could they want? But they wanted, and this is the heart of it, usually about lying, about stealing, about coveting. They wanted what? What's the word? What's the four-letter word? More. They wanted more. And I think you'll get to that next week. I believe Joel will when he talks about coveting. So they didn't become more like God. They became what? Less like God. And they became more like whom? Like the liar. Wow. So you see what Satan's doing here is he's telling a mixture of half-truths and half-lies. And that's usually the way it is in the world of deception. 
Were there liars in the Bible? You better believe it. You know, Abraham is a great father of the faith, but we know, we know he lied on at least two occasions. And it was the same lie, wasn't it? He goes into Egypt, and Pharaoh sees his, his beautiful wife, Sarah, and, and Abraham says, now let's tell him that you're, don't, don't tell him that you're not my wife. It, it was a positive command that he gave her. Tell him that you are my what? Sister. Was that a lie? No. Was it a half lie? Yes, because the intent behind it was Pharaoh was not to know that she was his wife. Was she his sister? Yes, she was his half-sister. She was the daughter of his which? Mother or father? Take a guess. Father. She was Tero's daughter, but not the daughter of Abraham's mother. And then in Genesis 20, he does it again to, uh, with Abimelech. And it, and it was a, a, a half-truth, and you might say that it was sort of the truth to protect him, yeah. But the intent was to do what? To deceive. Sarah. Sarah, she hears God talking to Abram, Abraham. When is it? Genesis 18, so it's Abraham, okay. She hears God talking to Abraham, and she does what when she hears that she's going to have a baby? She laughs. And then when God confronts her about it, she says what? Oh, no, I didn't laugh. Can you believe that? She thought that she could deceive God. Isaac does the same thing as his dad does with the same king, with Abimelech, uh, about his wife, Rebecca, in Genesis 26. Hmm. You'd think that he would learn from his dad. Jacob, oh, now there's a liar. Yeah. He, he deceived his brother, and he not only deceived his dad, but he lied to his dad. So he goes in with the hairy arms and all that sort of stuff with the pottage, you know. And, and then his dad, who's his dad? Jacob's dad? Isaac, Isaac point blank, asks him if he is Esau. And he says, what? He says, yes, I am. Jacob's brothers, uh, jo Joseph's brothers, deceive Jacob. They bring in the bloody coat. And they let the dad conclude that he has been killed by beasts and not tell him the truth. They lie. In the New Testament, the best example is Ananias. Ananias and Sapphira. They have withheld part of the money that they got from selling the land that they had committed to give to the church. And what does Peter say to him? Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to whom? To the Holy Spirit. And to keep back some of the price of the land. And then he concludes, Peter says this, before Ananias keels over dead. He says, you have not lied to men, but you have lied to whom? To God. Whenever we lie to anybody, we're lying to two other people. We're lying to whom? To God and also to whom? To ourselves. And bearing false witness, this specific example of bearing false witness that, that is uh, rooted in the commandment. Remember the story about Jezebel in 1 Kings 21. Uh, Naboth had a vineyard, and Ahab, her husband, wanted the vineyard. And Naboth, he said, look, I'll trade you. I'll give you better land somewhere else, but I really want that vineyard to provide shade for me. And Naboth won't give it to him. He says, I'm not going to give you the, the legacy of my family. And Ahab then goes, <laughs> says, he lay down on his bed, and he turned his back, and then he began to sulk. And then, then in comes Jezebel. I'm going to solve this. So what does she, she do? She writes a letter then to some of the elders in the Jezreel Valley. 
there where uh, Naboth lives. She says, I want you to pick two worthless people and then have them bear witness against Naboth and say that he blasphemed God and he then attacked the king, not attacked the king, but that he was seditious. And they do that and he is accused and he is stoned and Abraham, um, Ahab takes the, takes the vineyard. And you know the result of that. Because of that event, and Ahab was very wicked, and so was Jezebel, but it was because of that, that incident then that later that Elijah prophesies that both Ahab and Jezebel are going to be killed, the dogs are going to lick their blood, and she's going to die in Jezreel. Jesus' accusers in Mark, the 14th chapter, they give what? False witness, false testimony. What do they say? We heard him say that he was going to do what? He was going to tear down this building and rebuild another one in three days. That's not what he said. Look at John 2. That's not what he said. Peter. Was Peter a liar? Yeah. How many times? Well, we don't know how many times. But at least three. Did he know Jesus? No, I don't know this man. Do you know this Jesus of Nazareth? No, I don't know him. Do you know this man? No, I don't know him. Stephen's accusers in Acts 16, they gave false testimony. They gave false testimony very much like the false testimony they've been given against Jesus. They said, we have heard him talk about this Jesus, and he is constantly, that is, this Stephen is constantly speaking against two things. He's speaking against the temple, and he's speaking against the law. And not only that, but he's repeating the words of this man, Jesus, that said that he would destroy the temple and build it in three days. Why do people lie? I'm going to stop that. I'm sorry. Not lying. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> no, wait. Have you stopped beating your wife? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to stop tapping the, uh, the, the microphone. Okay. Why do people lie? Well, number one, to defraud. What does that mean? To gain an advantage at the disadvantage of somebody else. We lie to extort or to steal. And, and, and it's a, uh, it, a zero-sum game. You've got something, I want it, I take it from you, you have less, I have more. We lie to harm others sometimes. Usually, what is a motive? Jealousy, vengeance, sometimes prejudice, sometimes hatred. And usually that false witness takes the form, not in a courtroom, but in common parlance, common everyday gossip, and we call it what? Slander and character assassination. Sometimes we lie to protect our family our well-being, and our safety. Sometimes we lie to protect others, to spare others' feelings. You know what I'm talking about. Do you like the dress I'm wearing today? Okay. Husbands? Yeah. Did you like my uh, teaching in Sunday school this morning, if your wife's in there? Or my sermon? Sometimes we lie to protect others. And I'm not saying that any of you wives or any of you spouses do that. But we don't want to hurt other people's what? Feelings. Sometimes we lie to protect others from attack, from harm, from evil. Mm. Sometimes people lie to gain an advantage. Not necessarily at somebody else's expense. Not to extort. Maybe nobody, you, you've heard the expression, nobody's going to be hurt by this. <laughs> you know? So... People cheat on exams. That's not going to hurt anybody. They cheat on their taxes. That's not going to hurt anybody. Hmm. Sometimes people lie to advance or to protect a cause. 
I mean, after all, if the cause is really, really righteous, we do anything to promote it. And you've heard my story about Harold Hill, who was president of the Curtis Engine Company in, in uh, Maryland, who uh, picked it up somewhere. He, doesn't, he, he can't remember where he picked it up, but he then perpetuated this myth about NASA. He claimed that NASA had computers that had identified the lost day in history. Preachers beware of the sermon examples that you get off of the internet that sound really good to use. This is one of them. NASA was looking at its computers and they thought that they'd lost about 24 hours, you know, in, in, in their examination of, you know, the, the celestial space out there. And then a Sunday school teacher who worked for NASA said, well, I think I know where it is. Look at Joshua 10. And that's when Joshua fought a battle. And it says, for about a day, the sun stood still when he was fighting the Amorites. They said, well, that doesn't fill out the 24 hours. There's still some missing. And he comes back a little bit later after studying his Bible. And he says, well, look at 2 Kings 20. It says, you know, Isaiah told Hezekiah is not going to die, and proof of that is that the sun will then regress by 10 degrees. That is 40 minutes. They said, there it is. There's the missing time. Isn't that a great example of NASA and the computers and science proving the Bible's true? And Hill perpetuated that myth intentionally even after he knew it not to be true. Well, that's what? And NASA never did that. But you see, it's a righteous cause. Hmm. And he gave false witness to justify the veracity and the truth of Scripture. This does not need our lies to defend it. God does not need us to defend him with falsehood. But some people, for a righteous cause, they will lie, not just to defend the Bible, but if it's in politics, oh, wow. If it's fake news, oh, wow. Now we're really uh, talking about today, aren't we? Yeah. And sometimes, folks, it's in religious causes. You know? Mm, amazing. Sometimes it's to save face or to avoid embarrassment. Sometimes it's to earn favor or flat, to flatter someone. I think the core issues are this. One, I think when people lie, it's because of fear and insecurity, maybe. It may be because of a lack of trust. They lack faith in God to protect them and to vindicate them. Sometimes it's out of ambition and self-promotion, and sometimes it's out of just pure greed. Let me uh, close with about four or five uh, examples and illustrations. There's some biblical situations where lying seems to have paid off. What about the midwives in Egypt in Exodus, the first chapter? When confronted by, by Pharaoh, why they had allowed the Jewish boys to live, uh, they, they could have just said, because we have compassion. But they said, well, you, the Jewish women, you know, they're so strong, they work in the field, and they drop the babies before we can get there. That's not what was happening. What's interesting about this in verse 20, it says, So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. What about Rahab? Did Rahab lie? Yes, twice. When they come to find the men, when they come to ask who the men are, she tells them, the spies, the Jewish spies, she says, I, I, don't, I don't know where they came from. She did. And then when they come back to, to hunt them down, she tells them, oh, I think they, they've already left. They went this way. Where are they? They're hiding on the roof of our house. God allowed lying spirits to speak to the prophets that were speaking to Ahab. Ahab wanted to know whether to go to Ramoth Gilead and to fight against the Syrians. And God allowed lying spirits to enter the prophets to deceive Ahab because he wanted Ahab to go because he knew Ahab would meet his end there. Elisha 
commanded the Syrian king, uh, when Syrian king Ben-Hadad sent his general Hazel to him. Ben-Hadad was ill, and he sent Hazel, then his general, to inquire of the prophet, am I going to live or am I going to die? And what does Elisha say to him? He ordered Hazel, the general, to go to Ben-Hadad, the king, and to tell him he was going to live. And then Elisha told him, but let me tell you, he's not going to live. Because you know what Elisha knew? He knew that Hazel was going to murder Ben-Hadad and take the crown, and he did. So this creates something of a, a dilemma here. In the scripture, there are people who, in fact, do not tell the truth, the full truth, and there are good consequences that come out of those. Different cultures have different views about lying. Most major religions, as we've said, forbid lying. But in Islam, the principle of taqiyya says this. It says that if you are threatened because of your religious belief, if your life is threatened, and if you are called to reveal the location of imams or to, to tell about secret teachings, and you are commanded to do so, it is permissible for you to lie in order to protect yourself. In Hinduism, lying is permitted generally, and according to some of their manuscripts, on five or six occasions. It is okay to lie to women on certain occasions in certain circumstances. It's okay to lie when you tell a joke. If you're trying to arrange a marriage, sometimes it is, it is necessary to be a little deceptive. When your life is threatened, when there is loss of wealth that is possible that's going to come out of it, or if another person is going to be harmed. In Buddhism, they take a pretty absolutist position. You know, the five precepts of Buddhism are very similar to the second part of the Decalogue. You shall not kill, you shall not misuse sex, you shall not steal, and you shall not consume alcohol or other drugs. Those are four of the precepts. The fourth precept of the five is that you will not lie. By speech or action, and no malicious speech should come from your lips. They, do, they say all of your, your speech should be correct. But it is possible to deceive with the truth. And we see this all the time. I'm not accusing Buddhists of causing this in our culture. But we see people speaking the truth technically to deceive, in fact. So there's a story about Buddha who was walking in the forest, and he saw a terrified man running past him. And he foresees into the future. He knows what's going to happen. He knows he's being pursued by robbers. And so then he takes a step off to the right and stands off the path. The robbers come and say, as you were standing there, did you see a man running by? And Buddha can honestly say to them, no, I did. while I was standing here, I did not see the man running by. Was he telling the truth or not? He was telling the truth, but the intent was to do what? To deceive. To deceive. You know. We have that all the time in our culture. Parsing words. Postmodern psychobabble. When does is mean is? And if you remember the presidency, about four presidencies ago, you know what that means. Confucianism. Lying is to be avoided, but sometimes it's necessary to preserve social relationships and to benefit humanity. Postmodernity. The worldview of postmodernity. There is no supernatural lawgiver. There is no meta-narrative of truth. And if that's, if that's accurate, then 
Truth is simply culturally constructed. Truth varies from culture to culture, and there isn't an absolute norm. In Christianity, there have been two positions on this. One is absolutist position, and that is you never, ever, ever tell a falsehood, ever, for any reason. Augustine advocated this position, and so did the Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin, the Protestant theologian. There's a non-absolutist position which says that in some situations, deception is necessary. And you get into the argument, philosophic argument, about the greater good and the lesser of two evils. Advocates of this were the fathers Clement of Origen, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, John Chrysostom, and Ambrose. In modern time, the leader of the Confessing Church in Germany during World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and then more lately, Reinhold Niebuhr. So let me close with this. Are there instances where we don't exactly tell the unvarnished truth about things? And you know what I'm going to ask you. And you know the situation I'm going to give you. When we moved to Germany in 1960, early 1963, we lived in Schwäbisch Hall, Hessenthal. And we stayed in a, um, a guest house for a few days. And we met a pastor of a church there in town. His name was Pastor Kumpf and Frau Kumpf. And during World War II, Pastor Kumpf and Frau Kumpf hid Jews in their home and helped them to safety. And they had to deceive the authorities, the Nazi officials, when they came to hunt them down and to kill them. Were they right in doing so? It's kind of the Anne Frank story. What about in an honor system? You know, in an honor system like at West Point, when you see cheating, everybody takes the honor pledge. And when you see cheating, you're not to cheat, but when you see cheating, you are honor bound to do what? To report it. Do you do it? I mean, after all, nobody likes a snitch. And oh, guess what? Uh, later, if that person that is cheating, they'll probably be kicked out. But if they're not kicked out and they stay in the army, that person, somebody might be your commander. Ooh, <laughs> that's a bad thing. But what if you're on the order of merit list and you're number three and that person that you see cheating is number two? Do you, is there a conflict of interest there? You, you see what I'm saying? There are situations where we have to ask ourselves, you know, what does it mean for me to tell the truth and to be dishonest? And are there occasions when we have to think through this very carefully? So I leave you tonight with this question. Are you an absolutist? Are we? Is there never, ever an occasion when it might be necessary to deceive for the greater good? Are we, abs are we non-absolutists? I would observe this, I think. Some moral dilemmas really do demand our understanding that there's a lesser of two evils. Now, you may not like my saying that as your pastor, but I have to say, I think if I were living... In Schwabeshall, in 1943, I would hope that I would have the courage not to give them up. Mm. You, you see, what they were doing is they were, in fact, putting their life on the line.
It wasn't. It wasn't just a matter of what do I say with my lips. It's a matter of what I do with my heart. I do believe that God says, be honest, be true to yourself, be true to God's word and what he's calling you to do and to be. And Jesus said this, I'm going to take you before governors and kings or maybe before Nazi officials. Mm. And you're going to be my witnesses. Don't worry about what you're going to say ahead of time. Just say what is given to you at that time because it is who's speaking and not you. It is the Holy Spirit. We never blame God for the lies that might come out of our lips. But when we stand as witnesses, I believe what we must do is we must ask God how to answer. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will give us the right words. Whatever we do, we must be true to him. And if we are put in the crosshairs, and if it is our self-preservation at stake, there may come a time when we have to give the witness that we, in fact, are Christ's followers. Unlike the taqiyya principle in Islam, where it is permissible to deny the faith to preserve the body, Jesus says this, I'm going to put you in situations sometime where you're going to have to confess your faith, even if it means not just dying to self, but death. We must, in those cases, not dissimulate for the sake of preservation or for the sake of promotion or for the sake of gain or the, the sake of self-image. And I know that it's a difficult issue, but I'm not a pure absolutist on this. And I think that you need to decide where you stand. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.